Hi, it's David here. Thank you for listening to the Leader Coronavirus Daily. Please do subscribe and share us through your podcast provider. And give us a rating too if you can. That small thing helps us a lot in growing the show. Now, from the Evening Standard in London, this is the Leader Coronavirus Daily. Hi, I'm David Marsland. The post-lockdown lessons learned from a sword-fighting banker who bankrupted France. John Law was a, a financial advisor, effectively, to the, the French government. It turned out that Law himself was a pretty untrustworthy character, had been involved in the duel in Bloomfield Square, and an awful lot of people lost a lot of money, including the French state. Economist Stephen King on how the tragedy of John Law 300 years ago was informing decisions today and how a bad bank could help the UK. And... There's a lady who I've seen every day since the start of lockdown uh, skateboarding around Peckham. And I actually spoke to her the other day. She started rolling around with a broom. Evening Standard features writer Sam Fishwick on the creative ways some are commuting to work, along with advice on how to do it more traditionally. Taken from the Evening Standard's editorial column, this is the Leader Coronavirus Daily. For the whole thing, pick up the newspaper or head to standard.co.uk slash comment. In a moment, how bad banking could be a good idea. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season, when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Economists were a bit of a different breed in the 17th century. In the Evening Standard, columnist Stephen King's written about John Law, who killed a rival with a sword in Bloomsbury Square, escaped jail, and to cut a long story short, went on to bankrupt France and arguably caused a revolution there. The name sends shivers down the spine of many a modern-day economist, because what Law did in Paris shows the fragility of a country's solvency. We'll be talking to Stephen in a moment, but the names come up because the UK needs a way to revive a struggling economy without endangering its future. One proposal is a bad bank, which our editorial column thinks could be a good idea. A bad bank is not a failing financial institution. It's the term given to an organisation that is set up by a government to help other failing firms return to health. At the moment, the government is extending loans to thousands of small and medium-sized companies that would otherwise go bust. However, behind the scenes, the Treasury has also been negotiating much larger bailouts for big companies like airlines and steelmakers. In return for assistance, the government is considering taking equity stakes as well as making loans, so that the taxpayers share in the upside, if the company recovers. The civil servants apparently want to repeat the idea they came up with for RBS and Lloyds of giving them to an arm's-length government agency to run, so they are free from political interference. 
that freedom works on paper, but not in the real world of democratic politics. The only answer is to make the government ownership as brief as possible. Don't get hung up with talk of making a profit on the sale. We're not out to make a quick buck. We're out to save the economy and get the free market back onto its feet. The economist Stephen King is with me now. And Stephen, you've written an article for the Evening Standard talking about the financial problems being faced by the UK. And you've mentioned the lessons from John Law. So, Stephen, how is a banker from 300 years ago relevant now? <laughs> well, the, the reason why I, I refer to John Law, John Law was a, a financial advisor, effectively, to the, the French government 300 years or so ago. And he came up with a a sort of crazy idea that if uh, there were huge investments in Mississippi, which was part of the French colonial story at the time, then those investments could pay off significantly, it would add to the tax base and the French economy could grow its way out of its problems. And uh, it turned out that Law himself was a pretty untrustworthy character, had been involved in the duel in Bloomsbury Square, having tried for murder, had absconded to Europe and then became advisor to the French government at the time. And unfortunately, his scheme to try and make money out of Mississippi kind of drowned in the swamps of Mississippi. It didn't really go very far. And an awful lot of people lost a lot of money, including the French state, and in particular, John Law himself, who died a pauper. We won't be hopefully as bad as that, but um, it's odd that when you look at you know, well, basically very conservative central bankers and, and uh, finance ministers and so on, that's conservative, of course, with the small c, uh, when you look around at them today, it's odd that they're in one sense faced with the same kinds of problems that John Law uh, faced 300 years ago, the sense that um, there's a bill to be paid eventually, that debt levels will rise rapidly, and no one's quite sure as yet as to how to deal with that. How big is the risk of a lot of bankruptcies in the UK caused by this pandemic? Uh, well, the, the hope is that huge amounts of government borrowing will actually reduce the number of bankruptcies. There's going to be a, a massive hit to GDP in the second quarter of this year. I think everyone now acknowledges that. But what the government is trying to do, quite reasonably, I think, is to, in effect, put companies into hibernation. And the hope is that if they can be in hibernation rather than going bankrupt, then they can thaw out at some point later this year, next year, go back to business as usual. But of course, there's a cost associated with that, namely that government debt itself rises rapidly, um, particularly as a share of the uh, national economy. And I guess hibernation with no end date must be a concern. Yeah, well, that's a huge uncertainty. In fact, Jay Powell, the um, chair of the Federal Reserve, gave an interview over the weekend, really underlining how, how uncertain things are, because as economists and central bankers, you know, you're normally sort of reliant on your economic models to tell you, roughly speaking, where things are heading. But of course, we're looking now at epidemiological models instead and hopes about vaccines or uh, vaccines not materialising perhaps. Um, so the outlook is is incredibly um, uncertain. And of course, this in turn means that businesses themselves, who might normally be in, investing, given all the help that being given in terms of interest rates uh, being very low and all sorts of help from the government, under current circumstances may choose instead not to invest. And of course, that also means there may be some long-term scarring associated with this uh, crisis. Is this idea of a, a bad bank that's being floated about, one that kind of takes on the debts of the, the, the worst-hit companies, something that's feasible? The reality is that if you want companies to survive, you don't really want to tell them you can survive, but only under the condition that you take on an awful lot of debt 
yourself because, of course, many companies will say we'd rather not do that. So ultimately, you have to find a way of getting these debts onto the public sector's balance sheet. The principle really is very straightforward that the government is effectively borrowing from our future selves to safeguard economic conditions for our future selves. So the more companies that survive, uh, the better things that will be. So whether you call it a bad bank or whether you simply call it a a sort of government bailout, the, the underlying story will be that government debt will rise much more rapidly than you'd normally expect. And of course, the, the, the sort of previous occasions where this has happened is mostly uh, during wartime. And you can read more from Stephen in the Evening Standard or online at standard.co.uk. Next. Habits have changed. The office is changing and the nine to five is changing. Lots of people hated commuting anyway. Features writer Sam Fishwick on the new commute. How are people getting back to work? Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. There were more trains running, but there were definitely fewer passengers getting on or off at Waterloo Station. People are supposedly going back to the office, but they're apparently not using traditional routes. The trains are relatively quiet, really, you know, at, at the moment. It wasn't that packed in the tube, but uh, they were sitting, like, at least uh, two seats apart. I'm noticing my trains are a bit busier. I mean, I say busy. Ten people, a carriage isn't that busy, but still a bit busier. <laughs> So how are people getting to work? Evening Standard Features writer Sam Fishwick joins me over Zoom. Sam, are people finding different ways of getting into the office? I mean, the numbers last week suggested that since Monday, when obviously the Prime Minister invited anyone who couldn't work from home to return to work, they've had an uptick of about 10% on the TfL network. Now, they're obviously hoping that the TfL network remains largely empty. They can take, TfL have said, a capacity of 13 to 15% of peak capacity on the tube. So from people I've spoken to, they're hoping for a 20 to 30% uptake on single person vehicles. So scooters, bicycles, whether that's your own bicycle or scooter or one you've hired. People are going to have to take a financial hit though. I mean, bikes aren't cheap, are they? Yeah, bikes aren't cheap. I mean, the cycle to work scheme, which is the scheme by which most people who who work get some financial support towards a bicycle they've seen a 200 percent increase in people signing up and i know from speaking to a few stockists that they're just struggling to get they don't have the bikes frankly they're not used to this kind of demand and yeah bikes aren't cheap scooters aren't cheap you know people get tired david um you know you've got londoners who do work more than one job and even who work a single job and they just want to slump on the tube and be rolled home and then you've got that issue that the thing that put a lot of people off doing things like getting a bike or taking a scooter to work is that there's a perception that it's really dangerous but is london itself changing there's lots of kind of cones out there on the streets if you go out and it looks like there are more things like cycle lanes going in yes that's absolutely right it is changing um uh, it's quite exciting uh, london is quite ahead of other sort of um cities of a similar stature around the world for this We've got a fairly progressive scheme. I mean, it's worth saying that in Paris, where the number of people who rely on public transport is similar, 
the Mayor Anne Hidalgo has talked about tactical urbanism. But London is practicing its own form of tactical urbanism, turning um, streets into cycle-only streets in central London uh, and asking local councils to do the same. You're seeing more cycle lanes popping up almost overnight. Grant Shapps, the um, Transport Secretary, has allocated £250 million to um, UK-wide programme of sort of cycle lanes. And also significantly, expanding pavements. You're seeing pavements being doubled in size uh, rapidly because I think half of journeys in London are under three miles. The hope is that people will want to just walk to work. Yeah, I mean, can a fat bloke like me, who is incredibly handsome in a Danny DeVito style of way, realistically get on a bike and get to work? Well, I'd say, I mean, David, you're clearly a very spelt figure, but I do take the point that, um, interestingly, um, studies have shown that people are far more likely to walk than they are to cycle in studies that previously been done there's been no extra take up when governments have encouraged cycling and walking in cycling uh, but the number of walkers has doubled i think it serves a double purpose um, and, and if we are going to take weight as an issue studies from the university of glasgow have shown that obesity in britain is an enormous risk factor for more severe cases of COVID-19 related illnesses in hospitals and this idea that we need to get virus fit is going to be quite a sort of crucial plank of public health planning in the years to come anyway. And I wonder if in London even before all this began I wonder if people will be looking at different more creative ways of getting to work because here in this city I've seen people riding pianos to work there was once a rubber duck going up the Thames there's all kinds of ways of getting to work do you think we're going to see some Slightly unusual commutes coming up. I've always loved the people who commute to work uh, via canoe down the Thames and down the canals. There's a lady who I've seen every day since the start of lockdown uh, skateboarding around Peckham. And I actually spoke to her the other day. She started rolling around with a broom. She said she didn't like the gym. Skateboarding is her new form of lockdown exercise. And the broom is so that she can sweep any pebbles that she comes across out of her way. Should we encourage the return of the horse-drawn carriage? It might be romantic. It might make a nice change in pace. I think that I think the thing that's worth saying, David, though, is that you're going to see a lot less people commuting. Um, you know, habits have changed. The office is changing, and the nine to five is changing. Um, lots of people hated commuting anyway. There's there's there's, a, uh, there's you know there have been so many studies done on uh, the stress. Uh, commuting has on professionals, the um, unhappiness it causes. There's one study from a university in Sweden that suggested that for couples who have to commute more than 40 minutes every day, they're 40% more likely to divorce. So I think, you know, if, if people can find different forms of commuting, particularly if they're open air, it does make for a sort of happier populace. Um, the other thing I'll say is that um, it's imperative to in much the same way that we flattened the curve for the NHS to, to flatten the peak of commuting for the TFL, the rush hour at the start of the day, the rush hour at the end of the day, that is what our commuting networks are really, really worried about. That's where physical distancing is no longer uh, possible and therefore transport is no longer safe. So I think you'll see a lot of business groups, uh, hopefully in consultation with each other, saying to each other that, look, we've got to stagger the times that we're starting work, we've got to stagger the times that we're asking our employees to come in, and we've got to stagger the times that we're asking them to leave work at the end of the day.
And that's the Leader Coronavirus Daily. You can keep up with all the latest COVID-19 developments with the Evening Standard's live blog, which you'll find at standard.co.uk. And we also have morning briefings available at 7am through your smart speaker. Just ask for the news from the Evening Standard. This podcast is back tomorrow at 4pm. <laughs>